welcome to the Dawn of an Era of Wellbeing podcast that brings together some of the world's most innovative thinkers to weigh in on matters concerning the future of ourselves and our planet. And to discuss that future, not as something to be predicted, but to be created. In each episode, your hosts, Erwin Laszlo and Frederick Zhao, and the moderator, Nora Cesar, will converse with guests from numerous disciplines to help us navigate a new worldview which derives its wisdom from a synthesis of ancient and modern, East and West, science and spirituality. From these seemingly divergent perspectives, we will demonstrate how we can create a new narrative and usher in the dawn of a better era. So, welcome everyone. Today's episode will be focusing on Christianity, specifically Catholicism. Our guest is Father Laurence Freeman. Allow me to introduce him briefly. With Irish and English roots, Laurence Freeman studied English literature at New College, Oxford University. Before entering monastic life, he worked with the United Nations in New York in banking and journalism. Father Laurence is a monk of the Benedictine congregation of Monte Oliveto Maggiore. He is the director and spiritual guide of the World Community for Christian Meditation, a global inclusive contemplative community. He is the author of a large number of books on Christianity. He travels extensively, giving presentations and leading Christian meditation retreats. He collaborated with the Dalai Lama on many dialogues and worked together on the groundbreaking book, The Good Heart. He was awarded the Order of Canada in 2012 in recognition of his work for interfaith dialogue and the promotion of world peace. Welcome, Father Lawrence. Thank you, Nora, very much. It's great to be with you. And please allow me to introduce our hosts, Erwin Laszlo and Frederick Zhao. Erwin Laszlo, a two-time Nobel Peace Prize nominee, world-renowned philosopher and system scientist, author of over 106 books, founder of the Laszlo Institute of New Paradigm Research and the Club of Budapest. Recipient of multiple honors and awards, led the Goy Peace Prize, the Assisi Mandir of Peace Prize, and the Luxembourg Peace Prize. Frederick Zell, a business leader, futurist, practitioner of Eastern wisdom and Western science, author, chairman of the Family Business Network's Council of Wisdom, and founder of the prestigious Octave Institute, fusing ancient wisdom and quantum science as a platform for people to achieve a purposeful life, mindfully lived at new levels of consciousness and freedom. Irvin, I would like to invite you to start this session. So please set the stage for us. First of all, I'm delighted to be part of this dialogue to start it off. Fred had the, Fred Stowe had the insight to bring us together from one time to another, from each time to talk to a, a leader in a different religion, finding out perhaps what they have in common and what we can expect of them. We see Father Lawrence who has been awarded prizes for peace, we work for the United Nations, 
he is he's a very practical minded person, as well as a deep thinker and a deep religious leader. So we are not talking about religion here as theology, not worrying about what its, its background and its, what its pronouncements are. But rather, I suggest, at least for my part, I'd like to talk about what the effect of it is. What is the role and the consequence of belief in, in Christianity and the world today? What is it that we can expect of Christianity as giving us guidance? We need guidance. We're speaking on behalf or in the name of the human community. We have got off in a, in a tangent in the last 150, 200 years, especially in the last 25, 50 years, in an unsustainable tangent. Tangent that is creating more and more conflict and suffering, inequality in the world, and creating conditions that are worsening gradually, and not so gradually even, on the level of the ecology. So what is it then that we can expect, hope for, as the guidance that we get from Christianity? I would like to propose two words. I have had the pleasure also to talk to and be work with the Dalai Lama. That was also one of the one of these things that I learned from that. But also with religious Christian leaders, two key terms: one is love. And the other one is compassion. I suggest that what we need, desperately and urgently need in this world, higher level of love. We love as Christianity practices it. It means love, universal love for all things, and unconditional love, not in exchange for anything. This, I think, is a teaching that has inspired me from Jesus Christ. I can't say that I'm particularly a religious person, not in a conventional sense, but I'm religious in the sense in which I, I subscribe to William James's pronouncement, when he said that the religious experience of all kinds has one thing in common, that we are part of something larger than ourselves. And there's something larger appears to be a loving entity, a loving oneness to which we belong. Compassion is part of our being, part of that. We share it. We share the good and the bad. I don't really believe, but that's got into theology, I don't want to do that. I don't really believe about in evil as such. I think we are good. We were born good. We have been misguided often. But we live in a world that is filled with hate, is violence, is injustice. And underneath it all, I think there is human nature and the guidance that human nature gets from religion, of spirituality, religion as spirituality. I don't want to take up more of your time, the precious time to find out what Mother Lawrence says. I would just like to suggest, think about this. Let us use this occasion also to think about this. Christianity as a means of infusing universal love and higher level of compassion between people. That I think is desperately needed. How this can be done, what are the ways and means, 
that's something that we can discuss that needs to be worked on. But having a, a, an eminent Christian leader like Father Freeman with us, it's a unique opportunity to also to think about this aspect. I hope for my trust and faith in religion as a force for goodness and for understanding and answers. Thank you for your attention. I won't take up more of your time. I look forward to hear what Fred has to say and then what Father Freeman has to say. Thank you. Fred, please come and share your thoughts. Well, I believe that this, the, the language of science can be a possibility of unifying the worldview of the various religions that sculpt our culture. And when a crossroad of human challenge of sustainability and we have evolved to a stage of global reality and a challenge of sustainability. Uh, this sustainability comes because of uh, a market economy that has now driven freedom and it lacks morality and ethics. That's why there's a rise within the market economy itself <clears throat> for it to have uh, ESG and impact investment, which is ethics and morality. <clears throat> but we have to go back into a much more fundamental thing of worldview. Because how we see the world in terms of how we think about it, how we feel and how we choose. But there's a language barrier to cross truths. And every religion and, and science is all seeking truth. In my mind, actually, the scientific worldview could be a possibility, uh, the quantum languages, to talk about spirituality as consciousness. And we hope to find a common language that we can find a common sense and a commonality for us to move together as we. If we think about what we do and the, the history of humanity, it is a succeeding of finding the we and therefore the collaboration, and then we can find progress. If we cannot find the we and we fail to collaborate, we ended up in conspiracy theory, we ended up with fear, we ended up by, with ignorance, and then we start doing conflict and eventually to war. And so we can think about the history of humanity as one of succeeding or failing to collaborate. One that moved from I to we, which we do moment to moment without knowing. We seem to be focused on production, but yet in the, in the real fundamental, we're doing the I to we, whether it's a family, whether it's any other organization, religious or business, to reach the I to we, and that forms humanity. And this is the truth that we have to face. And all religion is try to find this thing. And if love is a reflection of our true nature, a reflection of truth that we are actually at one, then love is wisdom itself. The, of holism, of oneness, 
of expression of that oneness in the material world. The spirituality is whole and one, and the material world is, is expression, or in quantum science, the perception, the appearance of material separation. And so we need to endure to find a common language, to find a commonality, so the human being can move in the same direction of creating the we into co-creation of reality through collaboration. And I think we look forward to this series of dialogue uh, with religion and see if we can find a common language about truth. And I went to Catholic school for most of my life from kindergarten. And I believe what I learned, which we call religious study, which actually I always get an A, uh, informed me uh, about the truth. And it's really very similar to my Chinese cultural heritage and also quantum science. And thus unifying the East and the West. Thank you. Thank you, Fred. Beautifully said. I would like to invite in Father Lawrence. Can you please share a bit more about your faith and your journey of becoming a monk? Thank you. First of all, thank you, Erwin and Fred, for your uh, welcoming and, and uh, helpful, very helpful um, introductory remarks. Uh, it's wonderful to be here with you, and I'd like to make a contribution to this very important discussion. I think you put your finger on one of the most important topics of our time, which is what does what is religion for? And in what way will religion itself be transformed? Not just institutionally, but how will it, it how will its purpose be understood or rediscovered uh, as a result of the crisis that we're passing through? The first thing I'd like to say is that I, I don't I don't see, of course, a fundamental uh, contradiction between science and religion. Uh, a good example of this would be the Belgian Jesuit priest. I think he was he doing his research as a cosmologist and a physicist, and um, he was the he was the first person to imagine and discover the, the Big Bang Theory. And he, he gave the uh, mathematics of his discovery to Einstein. And uh, Einstein was not very uh, convinced about it, but he, when he read the mathematics, he said the mathematics is perfect, but the idea is absurd. So, uh, the Jesuit was called Georges Lemaitre. So for 20 years or more, maybe 30, 40 years, Georges Lemaitre was uh, within the wilderness. And then, of course, discoveries of the background radiation in the universe showed that the, the energies of the Big Bang were equally distributed in the universe. So he was then asked, is there a contradiction in your experience between religion and faith. And he said, no, 
he said, for me, there are two ways of arriving at the truth, religion and faith, sorry, uh, science and uh, science and, and faith. And he said, I use both. And the reason I think we can understand that they are complementary ways of investigating the truth, exploring the truth, uh, is because science itself is a contemplative activity. You think of science as being essentially reductionistic and analytical and so on, but it, it has many, many deep resonances with contemplative practice, with meditation. First of all, it is humble, because it, the more it knows, the, the more it realizes it does not know. Secondly, it is driven by an experience of wonder, the wonder of discovery, a childlikeness. And, uh, and also, in its pure uh, work, both science and contemplation have a sense of service, that what they are serving is the good of humanity, not just, I mean, the ego is always present, but fundamentally the work itself is directed towards the well-being of humanity. So I, I don't think there's any essential difference between science and religion. But we have to understand what religion is, I think, in order to make some comments about where Christianity is uh, at this time in history. I think, essentially, religion has can be understood as having three elements. There's the institutional element, everything. Eventually, uh, if it lasts, uh, it takes on an institutional structure. Every religion that we know has that, even some kind of clergy or priesthood or monkhood or some kind of uh, structure, and sometimes very hierarchical. Catholic Church is very hierarchical, for example. But uh, that's one aspect, the institutional. The other aspect, element of religion, is the intellectual, that there is an experience at the heart of religion. And the mind, in intuitively and naturally, instinctively, wants to understand. And so it, it thinks, it creates ways of explanation, not only at the rational and logical level, although that's a part of it, but also at the symbolic level. For example, the mystics, and this is the third element of religion, is the mystical element. And if we miss out the mystical element, religion itself begins to degenerate. It becomes ossified, it becomes hard, and it be, or it becomes oppressive. It can become a really dark force in the world. So every religion, that, when it faces a time of renewal, a regeneration, does so by rediscovering and reintegrating its own mystical core. At the, in the axial age, uh, about 2,500 years ago, uh, this great rediscovery or, or this great discovery 
of the of interiority and even of an ultimate purpose in life seem to happen across all of the global cultures at more or less at the same time. And out of this have come what we call the main religious traditions of our time. And at the heart of all of these and in the founding wisdom of each of these traditions, we find uh, we find a mystical element. And it's at this mystical element that, so it's in this mystical uh, commonality that we find the common ground of humanity. You were asking me about being a monk. Well, when I meet a monk, a Buddhist monk, or a, a monk in another tradition, uh, I feel they are my brothers and and I would include sisters. I would include. I would use monk as a as a, a, a non-gender term. I feel that they are my brother or sister. It's like I suppose when a scientist meets another scientist, or a, a plumber meets another plumber, they they kind of recognise they have a common something common in their lifestyle or in their way of understanding the world. And so monasticism for me has always been um, an expression of this common ground. It's found as a trans-historical and trans-cultural uh, phenomenon in all human societies after they've reached a certain level of, of uh, sophistication or development. Societies generate some kind of monastic lifestyle. and. Um, and I think that has provided humanity with a, a, a source of wisdom, a well of wisdom that it can draw on. Here at Bonveau in France, where I live now, it's our international center of the WCCM, uh, in our daily prayer, morning, midday, and evening, we follow a, we follow a monastic rhythm of life, integrates prayer, work, and study. And uh, in our times of prayer, when we meditate, we integrate a long period of meditation into each of these hours of prayer. Uh, we also have readings uh, from different traditions. And I, I find no contradiction in that, but I sense, especially when we're in this contemplative uh, environment, uh, the wisdom from these different traditions merges very, very powerfully. So um, those would be the first things I would say. We need to understand the nature of religion and these three elements that have to be nurtured. And the one that most often gets marginalized is the mystical, the mystical element. And when that happens, and it often happens in history, uh, we, religion fails it fails to contribute what it is destined to contribute to humanity, and that is a sense of relinking. The word religion, of course, means religere, to, to remember the links, the bonds of unity that we have not only with each other as a human family across all our differences, but also with the world of nature and the cosmos and with God. So this mystical element is vital 
for our world today. I visit. I was. I went to the COP twenty four meeting in Glasgow the year before last, United Nations Environmental Summit, and it was a huge, very busy, active event with hundreds of different participants and stalls. Everybody in the scientific, economic, educational worlds putting out their ideas, and it was. I came away, I, or at least in the middle of it all, I felt hope. I could see that humanity is very intelligent and faced with the huge problems we're facing, we are generating wonderful proposals to cure our self-inflicted wounds. Great intelligence at the technological, scientific and other levels. And then uh, a friend of mine who's been involved in raising huge amounts of money to fuel the green economy announced uh, his success. He has raised trillions or has commitments for trillions of, of dollars uh, to, to fuel the, the green revolution. So what's the problem then? We have the money. We have the science. What we don't have is the common mind. And of course, all of these negotiations are fraught with division and nationalism and self-interest and complications and bureaucracy, the ego, of course. So in the middle of all of this, I gave to a small group, I gave a, a, a short talk on meditation and we meditated together. And so for half an hour, there was this little point of stillness and silence in the midst of this ferment of, of ideas and activity and, and, and good nature and good intentions. And I think uh, for me afterwards, that was a, a small symbol of, of the importance of contemplation in our world and in our attempt to resolve the crisis that we have created for ourselves and that we have to solve for ourselves. And so it seems to me in our, in our work, the work of our community for 40 years now has been to teach meditation from the Christian tradition, but increasingly it's it, uh, you know, recognizing that meditation is a universal wisdom and that that when we meet in this experience of silence, stillness, and simplicity, we recognize each other. Just as a monk will recognize another monk, so meditators recognize each other. And this recognition from the heart from the deep intuition, I think is vital for achieving that common mind, that sense of unity, which if we don't, if we don't uh, achieve that, then all of our ideas and all of the money that's available will really be, be useless. So that's why I, I feel meditation makes a difference. And each of the religious traditions 
uh, has their own unique contribution to make, and they need to work together in friendship. Friendship is the key word. It's not intellectual agreement necessarily. They're always, I, I, I'm not sure that even the common language is the, uh, is, is the answer, because there's always going to be diversity. But where this experience of contemplation is awakened in an individual or in a group, it has the power to transform not only the people who are enjoying it, but the people that they come into contact with. And I'll just end with, with this question of language. And it maybe opens up the idea of what, what is the specific contribution or characteristic of, that Christianity, Christian faith can bring to this, to the human family. What is the sacred language of the Hindus? Sanskrit. What is the sacred language of the Jews? Hebrew. What is the sacred language of, of, of Islam? Arabic. So what is the sacred language of Christianity? Not easy. And when you ask a group of Christians that question, they come up with all sorts of answers. Some say Latin. Well, <laughs> well <laughs> or, or, or Hebrew or whatever. But we don't know the exact words of Jesus. We know him through translation. He probably almost certainly spoke Aramaic, translated later, of course, into Greek, and then into Latin, and then into all the world's languages. So we cannot worship the words of Jesus. We have to, we have to learn to, to, to interpret them. So what is the sacred language of Christianity? I think the best answer I can come up with is the body. The body. Because in Christian understanding, our understanding of, of Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, the Word of God becomes flesh. On uh, March the 25th, a few days ago, we celebrated the Feast of the Annunciation. This was that moment when, when Mary uh, conceived. And of course, there's a, there's a, a story, there's an, an elements of mythology about this. But the truth is still there. And this, the meaning of this is, a, is of great importance, I think, to what Christianity has to offer the world. The importance of understanding embodiment. That, that the human being, human consciousness is embodied. We cannot imagine anything human that is not embodied. Thought itself is embodied. Ideas are embodied. Imagination is embodied. So I think this is probably the, 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 the gift that Christianity has to, the common gift, but the gift that we have to to emphasize, I'm not saying we do it very well, uh, and I think Christianity has a, uh, a lot of growth to do, for example, in the theology of the body and the understanding of sexuality. But 
the, the core the core of that faith is embodiment and the embodiment of the human relationship with God. So I don't know if that's a helpful next step, but anyway, that's very some helpful. of the questions raised. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Father Laurence. Erwin, what would you like to add to that wonderful? Extreme, extremely helpful, Father Lawrence. Extremely helpful. Indeed. Until you got to this last section, last uh, segment of your of your talk, we talk about embodiment. You sound is more like a Buddhist monk than a Christian monk, at least in the in the normal everyday and everyday understanding. You really sounded like a deep Oriental monk, but that, as you say, is a universal feature. To, to be able to descend onto this deeper level. Meditation is commonly understand and associated with the Eastern religions. Mysticism as well. So there is an element, of course, in Christianity that, that you, I'm sure, have studied more than much more than I have and are much more familiar with. There is that element. But in the public mind, Christianity is not associated with meditative mysticism. It's associated with the necessity of faith, of, of being able to subscribe to the tenets of the sacred scriptures, regardless of what language they are written in. And then there is also the word of Jesus, the word of Jesus of forgiveness, of compassion and love. That, I think, is a tremendous gift and when we talk about, and we get to talk about now, perhaps about specific contribution of Christianity to the world today, to this tremendously uncertain and uh, uh, unsustainable and crisis-prone world, which is motivated by deeper feelings as well as by jealousies and power hunger and wealth hunger, all those elements playing together, then we need religion, religion not necessarily as something that is otherworldly, but religion as something that guides us in this world, that gives us orientation, tells us, yes, that there is a higher force, and that I think is fundamental, and I, and I have not heard what I've always mentioned that yet, but I think it's, it's worse to talk about that there is a higher presence in the world. Now, I'm supposed to be a scientist. I've, I've written over 100 books on that field, uh, philosophy of science and, and the applications of scientific thinking to society. And here the businessman next to us is sounded much more like a scientist and I sounded more like a monk, perhaps, you know, in a way <laughs> like a scientist. But it, all of these elements have to be brought together. Now, mm. to me, that is a very key element. There is a higher presence. There is a force or energy or orientation or spirit or whatever we call it. That we can't do science without that. I, obviously, we can't do religion without that. There is something in us which makes us belong to a higher entity, to a higher unit, to a higher oneness in, in the world. Now, 
how could Christianity spell out this more than it has been doing? Because you see the world in, in today is badly in need of understanding that we are part of something greater than we are, and that something greater is benevolent, it's oneness, it's, it's something that makes people join, okay? So I see the words of Jesus, that fantastic sacrifice that he has done, as being oriented toward love for people, love for, for the world in general. I think there it is. Now I'm trying to sound like <laughs> a Christian monk, but I am I'm, I'm not. But I'm trying to look at, try to get a balanced view. And I think a particular great, great accomplishment of Christianity is to bring love into the world and compassion and understanding into the world. How can we focus this? I mean, honestly, as a question, I don't know how. I'm sure Father Lawrence knows. How can we focus Christianity, the Christian teaching, not on dogma, not on, on, on the sacrifice that has been done, not on guilt, but on the beauty and on the oneness that is us. How do we do this? I think it's a very great need for that. I'm grateful to Father Lawrence for being with us and being able to discuss these things. Shall I respond to that now before Fred? Please, go ahead. Thank you. Well, thank, no, thank you, Erwin. Um, your, your point about, uh, in the popular idea, meditation is, 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 is an oriental practice, uh, Eastern religion. Um, that, that may well be true. And of course, for many years, uh, teaching meditation to Christians, I've encountered that. But I think over those 40 years, we've made some progress in educating uh, the Christian world to the fact that actually Christianity is a mystical religion. It's a mystical revelation. Uh, it's awakened. We awaken to this through a contemplative life. That means a life that is whose form and shape and motivation, a way of life that is influenced by that understanding of what Jesus is and understanding his words, interpreting the meaning of his words, means that we also come close, closer into union with who he is. The essence of Christianity is not the theology or the morality or the good works. All of those are inseparable, of course. But the essence of Christianity, per se, is the person of Jesus. Now, in that dialogue with the, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, uh, I've, I learned so much about interreligious dialogue by hearing him go into the, the deeper levels of meaning of the texts from the Gospels, the words of Jesus that we presented him with. and. Um, but he also, you know, but as he said, uh, the, the goal is not to create some artificial unity, but to find a common, a universal consciousness, a common, and the best word is friendship. The best word is deep friendship. 
Uh, we could also use the word love, but friendship brings it a little more down to earth. I think we have to see today that Christianity is a, is a non-dualistic religion. Now, this is much more easily recognized in Eastern Christianity, in the Orthodox traditions of uh, Greece and, and Russia. But uh, in Western Christianity, for various historical reasons, the contemplative element of religion became marginalized. It was thought that only monks were really able to to handle this, and this was a, this was a severe impoverishment uh, to Western Latin Christianity, which we are recovering since, especially since the great revolution that took place in the Catholic Church in the uh, late fifties and early sixties, the Second Vatican Council. This was an, an amazing internal earthquake within a major institution that looked into itself and said, we need to change. It was a revolution of consciousness. And uh, we're still suffering the aftershocks of this, but we are uh, we're on the way, I think, to, to remembering uh, ourselves and to remember what the, what the church actually is and what it means. When we do that, I think Christianity has a very powerful contribution to make you were saying, uh, Owen, that we need a, an awareness that there is something, that we, are, we belong to something greater. So that means our instinct for transcendence. Without transcendence, we are, we are brutes. We become brutish. Without transcendence, we cannot care with compassion and and concern for for the weak and the and and the and the abandoned, and that's why Jesus places the the care that we give to those who are poor, those who are in prison, those who are sick, those who need burial. He goes through the, what we call the corporal works of mercy, and he says in chapter twenty five of Matthew's gospel. He said, at the last judgment, um, those who, the, the, you know, the judge will say, come, come into the kingdom, because when I was hungry, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. And then it says, the people who, who said, but when did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty? When did we do these things for you? And there's this amazing response. When you did this to the least of these little ones, you did it to me. So that's Christianity. Now, <laughs> I'm not saying it has always it has always reflected that truth, but that is the heart of Christianity, I think. Um, the other thing I would say, if we get that right, if Christianity can remember that, that it's non-dualistic, and that, that Jesus Christ is the, is the emanation, the revelation, or the embodiment of that, of that unity of humanity with God, then the next big gift that Christianity should be able to make to the world is the charism of servanthood. 
Jesus also says, and anything in the Christian faith, anything that Jesus says could be said to be a translation of the divine word. Jesus also says, I have not come to judge the world, but to save it, which means to heal it, heal it of our divisions. And then he also says, uh, at the Last Supper, as he is preparing to leave and make the sacrifice that you described, he says to his disciples, you call me Lord and Master, and rightly so, but I call you friends, because I have shared with you everything I have learned from my Father. And that is an amazing, I think, moment of a religious revolution. He's describing God as a friend. Benevolence was the word that Owen used. That means that he shares everything with us, and that's what the sending of the Holy Spirit means. Nothing is held back. That means we as human beings are empowered to serve each other in a spirit of, 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 of love, and, but also to realize that we are on the road to divinization. And one of the, one of the mantras of the early Christian thinkers trying to understand all of this was God became human so that human beings might become God. Oh, I can see Fred is really like to oh, add sorry, something. Fred. Yes. Fred? I, I was saying, this is the best sermon I've ever heard. <laughs> um, it's just very, uh, very interesting and exciting. And meditation, because I'm a meditator since 30 years ago, and human beings are one when we have shared experience and a language that really relate with each other. And it reminds me of both quantum science and my own um, Asian Chinese tradition. There's no reality out there. All reality happens in our mind. And meditation is going in. And it reminds me that God is in us and in stillness we'll find him. And in stillness God will heal us. And the Chinese are talking about as unification with the cosmos. And that reminds me that actually that the we are mind, body, spirit being with different sheets of existence. And embodiment is the material expression of our spiritual nature. And then in meditation, you have an experience of non-duality. And, and then when we found that we are actually one, then the expression of that oneness is what we call love. That we're not separated as non-duality. That we found unification with the cosmos or unification with God. And then in most of the sermons I hear is not spoken in this way. And this is very interesting. 
because in our journey inward to find God or find self or to find unification, we actually do experience. And our external seeking will never find God. It is only through uh, internal exploration we will find God, we'll find oneness, we'll find love, and we'll find expression. And it is not, you know, you sound more like an Asian <laughs> Buddhist or urban say, and of uh, Asian practice of life. And also quantum science was said that we are made of consciousness. And where is the deeper consciousness? It's not outside, it's inside us. And we can only find oneness with God as we go into meditation inside us, because God is inside us. And God can only be found in stillness. And therefore, we have a shared experience of God, of oneness, of the cosmos, of consciousness. As this is expressed in both the Chinese culture, Indian culture, and quantum science. Unfortunately, language is a negotiation of agreement of shared experience. And without meditation, we really cannot find that truth. Mm. There is no reality outside. There is only reality in our mind, which we know in science, we are receptors that get information from outside. But all reality happens inside us. And um, it's not a, I've been to many Catholic sermons. I grew up with Catholicism, but I've never heard this sermon before. And uh, it uh, reminds me of uh, the teaching of Chinese culture, finding truth. It reminds me of uh, the teaching of Catholicism in the Bible. It remind me of the paradigm of quantum science that talked about what reality really is. That outside is nothing but a manifestation of what's inside us. It's not real. And that we must live, and we do live, really in an inner reality of our mind. And in our mind exists our soul. And this meditation approach to find shared experience and come up with a common language that pass is really a path of a journey inside, an exploration of inside, rather seeking from external reality. And so I, uh, I'm actually quite excited that you approach it from a journey inside through meditation. Well, thank you, Fred. Um, in the Gospel of Thomas, and the apocryphal Gospels, it contains many of sayings of Jesus in a slightly different form from the four major Gospels. In the Gospel of Thomas, uh, there's, a, there's a wonderful saying, the kingdom of God will be revealed when the inner and the outer have become one. And what it what that shows us is that we we 
we are struggling even in this conversation and even in this format, well, despite what we're talking about, but we, 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 uh, we struggle with the reality of, uh, of, of, of contradictions, of polarities, opposites, contrasts. The, one of the great definitions of, of God in, the Christian, in Christian theology uh, is that God is the union of opposites. And we could say that our, our human life, we need to, thinking of life as a spiritual journey itself, not that as we think today, oh, I have to make time in my busy schedule for my spiritual practice. You know, that's, that's uh, reversing it and complicating it dangerously and why, why we have lost the awareness of the obvious. Because we think that spirituality has to be kind of inserted into life, but it's life is a spiritual journey. And in that spiritual journey, there is this continuous process until the end of our time of the union of opposites and the integration of mind and heart, of body, mind and spirit. And uh, as I agree with you completely that I think in a way both science and, and religion agree with using different words that there is a mysterious force, energy, presence, whatever you call it, that holds all of this process together and is unfolding in a way that is way beyond our, our mind's capacity to understand. You know, we, we, can, we can almost get to the edge of the universe, but then we don't know what's, on the, what's beyond that edge. And we, and we live in this uh, this mind transcending, intellectually transcending, mystery. So that force, that energy, that presence, we could call love. And our own human experience of love, whether you call it meta, or karuna, or agape, different traditions give different words uh, for this and then they can argue about it. I, I had a Buddhist friend, a monk, who always made fun of me for using the word love. He said, love is just attachment. He said, you're always talking about love, but it's only, you know, wanting to possess someone or uh, some years later, he, he, he uh, disrobed and got married. <laughs> he fell in love. But um, but it, uh, we had very good conversations because uh, in well in the in the Greek tradition there are three words for love. There's eros, which is the instinct to unite. There is philia, which is friendship, and there are different levels of friendship. But then there is also agape, which is the word used in the in the Christian scriptures most to describe God. That's the, and agape is the completely selfless, self-giving, self-transcending um, meaning of love. So the words are different, 
but the truth is the same, which is this process of oneing, which is realizing, recognizing the fact that we are we are unified, and uh, and meditation, meditation, you know, today has been reduced to something almost sometimes just to a you know a, a, a commodity that you buy and or just to an instrumental technique for achieving certain immediate results. De-stressing, for example, all of which are useful and, and may be the beginning of, a, of a, a journey for people. But we also need to remember, looking at all of the religious traditions, that meditation is an embodying and embodied practice that we build into our ordinary life, ordinary life, and day by day, we, we, we give time to it, so even in a busy schedule, even with raising a family or you know making a living. It can be done, and that's what our community has has taught me over the last forty years, is that this contemplative practice can be very usefully built into any kind of lifestyle. And that's what is transformative. And not just for monks, not just for specialists, but uh, for, for everybody. And um, that's that would be my vision, you know, uh, of religion, is that at one point we could recognize it to be a community of faith composed of people of different beliefs. And by faith here, I, I just make this makes a distinction between faith and belief. Faith is the relationship, the bond, the interpersonal commitment that we all recognize to be essential for our human development. We have to learn to be faithful. And when we're unfaithful, we have to learn to say sorry and be healed. So this is what I mean by faith, this human, that we are faithful to each other at this moment in our conversation. And then there's a wonderful, uh, and, and, and when we have built a community of faith, we can allow people and in fact delight in the differences of belief that the members of that community, which is humanity, uh, hold. And there's no competition. Religions that compete should be, <laughs> should be, uh, well, they should be, they should be criticized for it. And of course, religions often do compete, which is a, which is a self, self contradiction. A community of faith composed of people of, of different beliefs. That 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 seems to me what religion should be aim, aiming to develop. Here's very interesting. To the Chinese, faith is no doubt. And language is shared experience. So we said this is a glass. The glass is a shared experience, then we have a language. But if we have an inner journey of contemplative reality, faith is just no doubt because you experience this oneness with God, this oneness with the cosmos, uh, whatever the language you use. 
And when you feel this oneness, there's no duality in there. Because duality is our perception to see how separation is. But in yes. fact, it's separation. And when you experience it, and it reminds me of Zen practices. Zen practice is not when you're in meditation. It's when you're in meditation in your life. Yeah. Where you're mindful and observe that with non-attachment to see the truth behind the manifestation of the dualistic world, to see through the, the dualistic world, and therefore having that experience in living your life and as a spiritual journey of yeah. seeing what it really is beyond the material worlds, which is non-dualistic. Mm. And Zen is a practice of non-attachment stillness as you experience life in the dualistic world and therefore changing how you see reality and experience reality. And so Zen is the seeing through when you have stillness and non-attachment. So the eye does not get involved in distorting the reality of your experience. See, when, thank you. When, uh, when you read the, 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 the New Testament, the Gospels, when you read them in the light of the experience of meditation, you can see why, as both of you were saying, this, you know, I sound like a, 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 an Eastern monk, Asian monk. Well, the reason is, is because at that level, at that core, yeah, reality is one. They're described in different words. What you've just described as the Zen practice is present in a different way in style, but is present in the teaching of Jesus. The Beatitudes, which is like his, uh, his fire sermon, in the Beatitudes, um, he speaks about purity of heart. And purity of heart is not, in the way he describes it, a moral purity. Essentially, it's, it's a unified vision, a unified perception, which is the result of what he also calls in the Beatitudes, poverty of spirit, which doesn't mean feeling a lack. Poverty of spirit means non-attachment. So he says, happy are the poor in spirit who are unattached because theirs is the kingdom of God. They've got everything. And then another beatitude, uh, his program for happiness, you might say, is happy are the, are the pure of heart for they shall see God. They shall see God. But we can, we can never know God as an object of our thought or of anything else. We can only know God by participation in God's own self-knowledge. And that's, that's really what meditation and the life that flows from it, the contemplative living and loving, that's that's the process that it is it is pushing along and, and fueling uh, that that um, participation in the self-knowledge of God 
So when you, when you read the Christian scriptures in the light of this experience of meditation, which is, which is um, reflected in the, in the mystical tradition of Christianity, unfortunately, you don't hear <laughs> many sermons on the Christian mystics because, uh, well, there's various reasons for that. One is that the, the people who give the sermons in churches were not very well trained in this dimension of Christianity. So most of the sermons you hear in church are, unfortunately, about the church or the, or the intellectual dimension or the institutional dimension of the church. That's why we get so hung up on issues, moral issues, sexual issues, and so on, which distract us and, and can only really be resolved anyway, I think, in the light of this contemplative, unified or non-dualistic vision. I mean, if you take three, three, three sources of great anxiety in the modern world, we've spoken a little bit about the ecological crisis, causes great anxiety, even for young children today. Then this whole question of uh, artificial intelligence causing a lot of anxiety, uh, not only at the economic level, but people wondering whether they're going to be taken over by the machines. Or you take another source of anxiety, which is gender, come up very strongly in the last few years. I, I don't think we can ever resolve the anxiety that those contemporary issues create without a contemplative consciousness. Because the well, answer to the don't you agree? I mean, no, I said, that? wow, <laughs> it's true. Mm. Because in our process inward to find out self, we found the image of God, because we made the image of God. So as we go in to find out our true self, we found out and know God. That's right. Self-knowledge is the basis of our knowledge of God, yes. Absolutely right. Irvin, what would you like to add to that? I would just like to recommend to multiply Father Lawrence. We need priests, we need monks, we need religious leaders who have this mentality. Not the everyday mentality of if you want to be somewhat fair, but also critical of Christianity. Very often there is that element of trying to make people artificially humble for sins, sins that the collectively humanity has, has committed and having to atone for that, having to still to live with a memory the built-in memory of that incredible violence, which is the act of crucifixion, that element which is not in the present in Buddhism or in, in most of the Eastern religions, it's present in Christianity, and it doesn't favor a unity. It it is it is means subservience to a jealous God, the wrathful God, and that is very often comes through the sermons, the everyday sermons. A little bit that I go once in a while when I can to a, to a, to a church and hear a, a sermon 
most of the time I'm struck, struck not by the emphasis on love and on joining together, but on the emphasis of trying to atone for sin or guilt by carrying, by pointing to the crucifixion. I don't dare to look at the crucifix. At the crucifix, it's the most incredible violence if you think of that. I don't even want to somehow imagine that what it means to put somebody on a cross with nails, you know, and until they until they I, I suppose lose consciousness. But it's the most incredible violence, and there is not the that if that comes to the fore, it doesn't help people to find unity then they want to find the guilty and avenge it. What we need is that higher spirit, which, which was behind it, which is in the personality of, of Jesus, not the one who was, who, who well, actually the one who, who carried the cross and, and forgave, begged for forgiveness, because the people don't know what they are, what they are doing. But there is the, in the deeper sense which I think you can see also in the gospel to the Essenes, to the to the lectures to the Essenes, which is this wonderful love and oneness, his nature and his people. How can we bring for Christianity that element to the fore, not the element of violence and serving a, 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 a higher God, which is a jealous God and needs to be served and worshipped, but having this oneness. I think it's, 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 it's just, we need more father alliances, you know, who are actually preaching and, and this, on, on the everyday church all over the, all over the world. We need that. I'm very grateful for this conversation. I'm sorry if I sound a bit primitive on this, but this is a sincere puzzlement, a sincere regret that I have. And Christianity is a doctrine of a higher truth, of a deeper truth, of a oneness, of a belongingness. And then there is emphasize and acts of, of violence, which is uh, which is necessary to absorb to source for salvation for our guilt. Salvation do we need to be solved to be to be salvated at all times? You know, I'm not a theologian. These are the reflections of a private person who tries to think of what it is Christianity. I would like Christianity to be a universal religion, a leader in the world of spirituality, it needs to be, I think, emphasized this element that we have been discussing for the past hour here today, and not, unfortunately, the element that is very often emphasized in the everyday Christianity around the church and the quarter. So I want to thank Father Lawrence. I think we need to clone him. We need to have an educational system that brings religious people as leaders as toward a higher consciousness and pointers of the way toward it, not to one church, but to, to the church of the cosmos, church of humanity. Thank you for this discussion. And again, my deepest respect to Father Lawrence and my deepest thanks to Fred for initiating this and for commenting on this and, and to Nora for leading us through it. Thank you all. Thank you, Erwin. These sound like wonderful concluding words. So I'm going to ask Fred to say his concluding words, and then I'm going to ask Father Lawrence if it would be possible to end this podcast episode maybe with a blessing 
from you, something that the audience would be able to receive and take with them when they are listening to this episode. Fred? I think this is an era where we have a faith that's not a belief system of a religious dogma, but a direct experience of God. And therefore, human being can move on with a shared experience of spirituality and faith of no doubt that we are one and that we have to unify and work in the material world to create the world that is inside. And uh, I think um, Christianity being the biggest religion in the world, as Urban says, a dominant religion in the West and bridging to have a new uh, reality within the different faith to find this shared experience, a journey to find God inside us. Thank you. Father Lawrence, please. Well, I want to thank uh, both Owen and Fred and, and you and uh, all your listeners for making this very uh, blessed time of sharing possible. Um, I, I, you asked for a blessing. What I'd like to do is read the, the closing prayer that uh, many of our meditation groups around the world use at their weekly meetings and um, in, invite, invite you to apply this blessing uh, to, your, to your own movement, to your own community, your own organization, um, because I, I hope these, this, these words, um, which actually I, I wrote at the last minute at the blessing of our first meditation center in London many years ago, um, that these words uh, reflect something uh, in common uh, for any group, organization, fellowship that is concerned with the with what we have been talking about today. May this group be a true spiritual home for the seeker, a friend for the lonely, a guide for the confused. May those who pray here be strengthened by the Holy Spirit to serve all who come and to receive them as Christ himself. In the silence of this space, this room, may all the suffering, violence, and confusion of the world encounter the power that will console, renew, and uplift the human spirit. May this silence be a power to open the hearts of men and women to the vision of God, and so to each other in love and peace, justice, and human dignity. May the beauty of the divine life fill this group and the hearts of all who pray here with joyful hope. 
May all who come here, weighed down by the problems of humanity, leave giving thanks for the wonder of human life. We make this prayer through Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you, Father Lawrence. <laughs> thank you. That was beautiful. Thank, thank you so much. So this was an incredible, compelling note to conclude on. I'm Nora Cesar with our hosts, Erwin Laszlo and Frederick Zhao, thanking today's very special guest, Father Lawrence, for being here. And if you would like to know more about Father Lawrence's work, then you can go and check out his website, www.wccm.org, which is the World Community for Christian Meditation. So everyone, please check out his website. And I would like to thank our worldwide audience for listening, as well as our wonderful production team which I am happy to be a part of, led by Kenichi Sugihara, Suki Tai, and those many others at the Octave Institute and the Laszlo Institute. From whatever nation state or emotional state you might be in, this is the place to tune in. We invite you to join us for more episodes of Dawn of an Era of Wellbeing podcast, as well as to give this book to yourself or a loved one. It's a true companion for these challenging times. The bravado of our ego has historically gotten the better of us. So remember, this time when building that new paradigm for humankind, let's include humankindness. Stay tuned and stay attuned. Thank you for listening. Dawn of an Era of Wellbeing is a co-production of the Laszlo Institute of New Paradigm Research, the Octave Institute, and Select Books Publishers. Our theme music is Chimera by Biba Dupont. For more information about Dawn of an Era of Wellbeing, please visit our website at www.thelasloinstitute.com. If you enjoy our program, please remember to subscribe to us on your podcast service. And if you are using Apple Podcasts, please give us a rating to help other listeners learn about our show. See you next time.